Well, as we continue here, there's an aspect of our, our worship that you'd say. And worship is a word that may sound familiar or may be abstract, but worship essentially is ascribing worth to any given thing. And so as we continue in our worship, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We, we do this in a, in a way to um, demonstrate with our body that there can be... Uh, this word of God that comes to bear on our person, and so we stand in response. Today we continue in this uh, ser- sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, and today we hear from Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So uh, picture this scene with me. You are eight, nine, ten years old, and it is Christmas morning. And there, there's a good chance that you have now been up since dawn with this frothing anticipation of what's to come in this day. That is, presuming that in some of your lives, Christmas was a moment where there was, I don't know, goods and treats and things like that. So if this is from your life, just imagine that moment. It's you, eight, nine, ten years old, and there you are. You are like beside yourself with joy, waiting for what's to come. Maybe there's a meal ahead of you or some unique visitors or just like the excitement of presence awaits you. And so there you are on Christmas morning. Do you, do you have that in there? Do you have this picture, you, however you're wired up, your disposition at that time. Now let me just ask, what preceded that anticipation? And more specifically, what, what gave shape to your anticipation? What was it that made that morning particularly exciting? And my, my guess is it just gets summed up in a word. It's, it's presence. And I don't think there needs to be any shame around that. Um, even at three, Griffin, uh, my, my boy, he, he's our eldest. He gets this. This past week, we're reading through this book. It's a frog and toad. I don't know. It's like these stories. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so we're reading through, and he wants to read the Christmas one. So we're, we're going through, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the story, Griffin stops. And he says, Daddy, when is it Christmas? When is it going to be Christmas for us? And so, uh, like you do, we kind of start counting on our fingers. And so he provides, I only have 10, so he provides two. And we count January, December. It's all the way at the end. And so we get through that moment. And I said, well, what? why did you want to know when Christmas was? And then there's just this, this pause. And then this, like, gleeful sp- squeal comes out of him. Presents! <laughs> and that, that is the one word. It's just, it's presence. Whether you are eight years old or you are three years old, I imagine what shaped anticipation on that particular morning is just that one word. It's, it's presence. Now, fast forward to today. It's 2022. And maybe you can even remember this past year in 2021. Um, do you carry that same anticipation? Do you have like this burgeoning squeal coming out of you on Christmas morning? Does the prospect now of a gift six months from now, does it like, do you feel yourself getting giddy? 
or does the prospect of receiving a gift in general kind of draw forth this dread from your inner woman or your inner man? Can you feel yourself kind of closing off? There's even that fear of intimacy that comes with the exchange of gifts. And you're like, maybe if your story is like mine, there's a suspicion of the giver of the gift of, okay, what's going to be coming with this thing? Uh, essentially, there's this question, what wells up in you when a gift, whether that's even just an affirmation or an encouragement, what wells up in you when a gift is on offer? And I think that how we respond to that question, what wells up in us when a gift is on offer, does far more, it can, it can tell us far more about our life with God than a, a theological position paper or church attendance or participation in spiritual disciplines. What wells up in you when a gift is on offer kind of brings us to this place of, are we poised in a place to actually receive? Are we even willing to receive from God? Hear Jesus again at the end of this teaching text. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If just hearing that there is, like, the, the divine, however you want to conceive of this, like, that the, that the God of heaven wants to and hopes to give good gifts, if that if that offer elicits that cocktail of dread and fear and suspicion, then I have a simple invitation today to expand your expectations of what's on offer in Christ. What if, what if there was an opportunity today to shift your perspective of the divine, of God manifest in Jesus of Nazareth from somebody who's standing with a rod to somebody whose arms are open with a good gift on offer? What if that was a shift that, could that you could participate in? And I'm, I'm not just talking about money or goods or things like that. I, I imagine those things can be there that like the Father wants to generate those things through your personality, your work ethic, whatever. Like I'm sure that's a part of it. What I'm talking about is His presence, like the personal presence of the living God on offer. Because it seems as if the Father has much more to offer than we're willing or even open to receive. So what wells up in you when that gift is on offer? And I, I don't get the sense that this is really anything new. In fact, when you open up the scriptures uh, from the beginning, this is something that is right in front of us. The suspicion of the gift. And just track this with me. When you, when you open up page one, you can see this. Instead of receiving our, our ancestors, our first parents, they have this moment where they can receive God's definition, His bounds of good and flourishing, or they can resist it. And in turn, there is this resistance to those bounds of flourishing, and they choose to reject the generosity of God's, God's provision, and they seek provision on their own terms. We, if you grew up around the church, you know this as the fall. There's this moment, the redefinition of good and bad. And in that moment, it like unleashes these floodgates of shame and anxiety. And this then is woven through the story and through the unique people who are the people of Israel. We see this play out. We see this play out through the scriptures that almost is this picture of who humanity is. People wrapped in, racked by fear and anxiety. 
And, and through that, we actually see that play out even in today. But there's this particular line that I think tracks with this really well in the biography of Jesus' life and ministry in the Gospel according to John. We, we hear this line in John 1.11 that says this, He, that is the living God, came to that which was his own, the people of Israel, but his own did not receive him. And there's a type of tragedy to John's words. Like, uh, uh, there's this ignorance of the divine. An ignorance that God has come manifest in Jesus of Nazareth to these people. And there's a tragedy to that. Because it also tells the story of our own reluctant reception. I think so often, we we really don't have much of a problem of seeking meaning outside of ourselves. We, we, We do that through externals all the time, through the garb we wear, to the jobs we hold, to how we tell those stories on the social medias. We really don't have a hard time seeking meaning outside of us, except when it comes into this unique space of that the Creator God would come manifest in Jesus of Nazareth. Then there's suspicion that, and even a reluctance that rises up in us. John goes on in John 1 to finish that line by saying, Yet to all who did receive, to those who believe, that is, trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. That is, this new birth takes place, and trust is the path upon which that is formed. There's this new thing that God wants to birth in you and in me, whether you are a man or a woman or however you orient yourself in the world. There's something new that God wants to birth in you and in me, and he wants to do so through faith. No longer as strangers, but as friends and more as family. And trust opens that door. And in that place of trust, there is like this fragility that I think we experience because there's that suspicion and what will actually come with this. And even if that trust is fragile, it is still there to be had. And so, just a bit further in John's opening lines, in case you've not like taken the hint, this is what John says in John 1, 16. He says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Heaps of blessing, Like grace upon grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. And from where does all of that blessing come? It comes from his fullness. And this is where I hope for us to hang out this morning as we're sitting here taking in what all this is. Um, to, to sit in the bounty of God's grace and to kind of sur- like poke and prod our way around why that might be difficult to receive or how that is challenging to receive. And as we poke and prod our way around the abundant gift on offer in Christ, I just want us to to remember that unreserved expectation of a child, that, that child who is securely attached to their parents, who they just sit in that place with welcome arms to what's going to be given. And typically... What I would do is, in light of our teaching text, I would just want to anchor down in there and we would talk about the oddity of Greek words and, oh, you think it says this, but actually it kind of says this. Um, but today I, I want to do something a little different. I want to offer us four stories to help us expand our expectations about what's on offer in the presence of the living Christ. Four stories about feet, children, oil, and Mary. So if uh, you like to take notes, and those are for you then. Feet, children, oil, and Mary. So I'll pray and we'll kind of move right into that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you that uh, there is on offer life. 
not an illusion of life or life in our own making or by our own fabrication, but life that is fundamentally and foundationally different, life that actually moves forth from the place of death, that it is actually, it resists decay. And so I, I would just ask Jesus that you, through the power of your spirit, would, that you would open us up, that you would open us up to receive from you today. And that spirit, you would stand in my body, you would speak with my lips and think with my mind as we come to hear from you how you indeed want to open yourselves up to us. Amen. Feet. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the company of his closest companions, Jesus takes a towel and he takes a bowl of water and he sets out to wash his disciples' feet. And I know that like the language of discipleship, even today, after a lifetime in the church, discipleship can still sound odd. But essentially, these are apprentices of Jesus. They're going to take up the, the tasks and life and orientation of Jesus to do what he did. And so there Jesus goes to wash his disciples' feet. It is the master coming under those who are apprenticing to his way. And if you've grown up in and around the church, you might be familiar with this story, Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist and washing his disciples' feet. But did you know that this was a normal practice? That regularly through the ancient Near East, there would be homes wherein there would be attendants, servants who would wash the feet of those who were visiting the home as a way to honor them. This would be a regular practice. However, the thing that is completely out of whack in this story is Jesus. See, in this moment, Jesus is entering into this obscure and odd practice because it is one thing for a servant to wash a master's feet or for an apprentice to wash their rabbis or their, their master's feet. However, it is an entirely different paradigm-shifting reality for this downward movement of Jesus from rabbi to disciple. And just this is how it plays out in John 13. This is John 13, verse 6. Jesus comes to Simon Peter. And he says to him, Lord, this, this is Peter responding to Jesus. And you just imagine the scene. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, what, what are you doing, Jesus? This is a bit out of sorts. And Jesus replies in verse 7, you do not realize what I realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And Peter, and if you know anything about Peter, he kind of just flies off the handle. He's got quick lips. And so he says, no, like you shall never wash my feet. And if you're new to the library of scripture, this is like Peter might sound a bit testy, but this is commonplace for him. When Peter sees the, 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 the risen, like sees Jesus transfigured, and then Jesus says that in fact he's going to go to the cross, Peter starts to rebuke Jesus. And this is this line, get behind me, Satan. So this is kind of the dynamic that Peter and Jesus have going on here. So maybe Peter just feels comfortable saying to Jesus, no, that will not happen. But it makes sense here because this is upending the paradigm. Of course, Peter, this is the natural expression. Like, you ought not wash my feet. This is inappropriate for you to do. But, but what we see here is, is that Jesus is actually, he's saying, you don't get what I'm doing. Just listen to Jesus' response. Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. In other words, unless you receive my service, you cannot serve in my name. Unless you receive what I have to offer, there's no going forward. Unless, unless Peter expands his expectations of what's on offer in Jesus, it stops right there. 
Like he'll be missing not just a little bit of Jesus, but he'll be missing the whole thing. Because Jesus is trying to demonstrate, to, to show through service with Peter that it is going to be by coming under, that that is how the movement of Jesus is going to go. It is going to come under to build up. Now, Peter, the rock, crumbles under the weight of Jesus' statement. And when, he, when it starts to sink in, that indeed service, this like bold act of love, this other orientation is going to be the way that Jesus moves, Peter like almost repents in some sense, and he says, wash all of me. And you and me and we, I think that we're like Peter. We're okay with trade that is like, okay, you do that for me, and I'll do this for you. We're okay with that. We're okay with a little trade. We're okay with a little hustle. We're even okay with like giving away for a good cause. We're okay with serving in that regard. But gift? Gift frustrates our status. Gift comes with this obligation and intimacy. Gift upends the paradigm. But have you ever wondered what's beneath all of that? Like what's beneath the angst of receiving? And maybe this is just like some autobiographical teaching and you're like, I have no problem receiving gifts. I love it. And if that's you, Lord bless you, like teach us how to do that. But maybe if your story resonates with mine that there is a difficulty, a frustration, what is beneath all that? Is it that we think we're unworthy of care? Unworthy of receiving those things? Or is it something else? See, unlike other noble world religions, the way of Jesus scandalizes us with grace. Almost every other spiritual or religious system is predicated upon you getting back what you have put in. That is your merit and your qualifications and your ongoing participation. Not to say that our participation is irrelevant. It's just it's not the main thing. Because Jesus is inverting the paradigm. He's frustrating our religiosity. Because we don't get back what we put in. We get what we've never put in. And King Jesus, who gives out of the abundance of his Father's hands, he comes as a servant to come under and build up. And I know that it's a beautiful day and maybe some of you are, are hot and you're wanting to renegotiate your seats. Please feel free to do so at any time. But I, I just have to say, I, I, how is this resonating? Is this like, we're gonna do well with some head nods from time to time, okay. That affirmation was so helpful. I received that gift, yes. Uh, see, if you're like me, this sounds nice from afar. But then when it gets close, it feels something like a threat. Because I want to put something in. I want to say that I've done well and that Jesus can then affirm the things that I've done well. And from afar, like the service of Jesus, the unfailing love of God revealed in Jesus, like, yes, freely giving his life so I can live yes and amen, except when that then comes to bear on my life. Because I would love to say that I hustled for Jesus. Did you see on that one morning when we showed up and then we forgot the snake, but I went back to gravitate and I got it. Did you see that, Jesus? Like, I want to be able to say those things as though it counted for something. And where does that come from? And for good or for ill, I don't, I don't know, but from a young age, many of us were trained to measure ourselves against a standard. In school, it was zero to 100, 100 being the best and zero being the worst. And when I was in school, uh, this translated to like a 4.0 is the best, the pinnacle of academic success. And then when I got into high school, all of a sudden things started to change because there were AP classes. 
and apparently you can just throw another grade point on the end of a 4.0 and then there's people rolling around with like a 4.2, 4.5, 4.7 GPA and the pinnacle of academic success has now been extended and when you, th I thought I was doing well and then my peers are doing even better, the standard, the competition, the intensity, oh. Those expectations, they've, they've all of a sudden moved. And you, and you might think then that, like, okay, after high school, maybe even after, let's say I go beyond high school, I go to school, I, I go to graduate school, then after that season I can rest, I can settle into the rhythm of a job. Instead, there are now new expectations. All of a sudden it's 60, 80, 100 hours a week that you're working. And of course you're trying to live your best life in the midst of that for the socials and you're also, you know, I don't know, trying to post compelling and socially engaged commentary on Twitter and all the while you're doing this while trying to stay fit because, you know, Instagram. And so there you are trying to live your best life in the middle of that and you're like, once I just get established, then I can settle in. But all of a sudden you're like working 60 hours a week, that's settled in, and now maybe you're in a season of life where you have a, a, a small human in your life and so you're trying to co-parent with another person who's also trying to pursue their career ambition and then there's like schedules and nighttime and when is the last time we were, I don't know, intimate? What's going on in your life? You're like, what am I doing? By the way, what's for dinner? <laughs> Then amid all of the hustle, on the week that you finally make it to church, you're like, it's outside, I can do this. The week you finally make it, Jesus comes along and says, unless I serve you, unless you receive what I have to offer, there's, no, there's really no part. Then it actually starts with receiving. See, while our vision of what the world has to offer continues to expand, and I thank God for that. That's a, I receive that as a gift. Yes and amen. Like, that might be true and Jesus wants to get down and wash your feet. Jesus wants to, like, what's the equivalent of this? Jesus wants to go into your home and wash your toilet. Like the place that you don't want Jesus to see, that's actually where he has an interest in coming and serving you in the place that you're like, that's, that's no. And like Peter, our fragile egos are threatened by Jesus' love because we can't hustle for it. He wants to just freely give it. And to my mind, the burden that many, many of us carry is our merit. Our merit clutters our hearts, it fills our hands, and Jesus is asking us to set those things aside so we can be held and behold Him. We think Jesus wants what we can produce, and to some extent He does. He just doesn't want what we can produce at the cost of losing us. Because if Elsewhere, Jesus will say you can gain the whole world, but you can lose your soul in the process. That is, you can lose the core of who you are. I encountered this simple line from St. Augustine this week that shook me something fierce. He said this, we are what we have received. We are what we have received. And so often we can have this distorted image of God with a rod in his hand waiting to dole out correction. But what we experience in Jesus is the gift of love longing to build us up regardless of our resume, our recognition, our status, or anything like that. It is a fundamental shift. Unless you let me wash your feet, you can have no part in me. And you know, that's not the only unless line that Jesus has. Elsewhere in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus has this line. He says this in Matthew 18, 3. He says, 
Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever seen a tiny human throw a tantrum in the grocery store? Or at Gray's Lake Terrace? Maybe later today, you will. I have. I've seen the tantrum in the grocery store. It's lovely. It's a whole thing. And, and in some sense, I'm not like I'm being a little tongue in cheek there, but in some sense, it is a beautiful thing because that toddler or small child or adult, they actually have the trust sufficient to like lay bare all of their emotions. They're willing to give you their worst. That's a beautiful thing. So if you're, next time you're in the moment of receiving a tantrum, just know they trust you to do that. Um, but do you know what often precedes the tantrum in the grocery store? It's, it's the entrance. And you see this cornucopia of delightful goods from the fruit and the vegetables to then what are these strange things in bags and they're colorful and delightful. And if you have ever been into a grocery store with Griffin, it's like, oh, daddy, I think, I think we need that. We should probably have that. I want one of those. Can we get some of that? And after the 12th time saying no, something settles into his spirit that, oh, this is, it's a battle. It is on. And that is then where the tantrum starts to come. But in the midst of that, there is no concept of budget or time or list or we came here for limes. That's it, dude. Like there's no, no perception of that. Instead, he comes with this unreserved expectation that I, in the moment, can give him anything and everything in that store. And there's something beautiful about that. See, so imagine how bizarre it would be if I went up to one of my boys and I, especially Griffin, he, if I went up to him with blueberry cake, he loves blueberries and he loves cake. You put those things together and it's like heaven coming to earth. So if I went up to Finn and I said, okay, dude, here's some blueberry cake. But he said, dad, the cake looks great. You, you did really good. But you know, I just don't really feel worthy of cake today. I've been a little unruly as of late. I, you know, I like was throwing stuff at Silas and, um, yeah, I just don't, I don't think I, I'm in a place to receive that cake today. How ridiculous would that be? If anything, that would be a commentary not on Griffin, but on the parenting that I'm doing with him. So in some sense, do you see how ridiculous that would be? See, Finn doesn't say that. When I say there is cake, I don't even have to say anything. If I have like a piece of toast, he says no words. His mouth just starts to open and he moves toward whatever that thing is. And the moment that he gets the thing that I'm eating, Silas then on the other side of the table starts protesting that he's not had it as well. So it's this moment where they're like, there is something to be had. It is this unreserved expectation. See, un unless you come like little children, unless you let me wash your feet, See, we, we may not like to hear this, but the invitation of Jesus, it comes with some stipulations. And the stipulations are this, that we must come with our hands unencumbered by our merit in a posture of un, unreserved expectation. We need to expand our capacity to receive because God always has more for us. Lest we believe this like false dichotomy that, that Jesus is the, the, the one in whom love was manifest, but the, the God of the Old Testament was like angry and that's where the rod is. So just to like push back against this, this is our, our third story. Um, this is about oil. Uh, back in the Old Testament, that there is this prophet, the prophet Elisha. And this is the prophet with the double portion. And in, in 2 Kings 4, Prophet Elijah staying with a widow, and this widow is steeped in death, in in debt after her husband has passed away, and so there she finds herself with her sons. And as the story unfolds, the debt collector turns up to to 
basically get back what is theirs and the interest. And so the widow turns to Elisha for help and wanting to help, Elisha says, okay, well, what's available to you? And she says, well, I have this small jar of oil. And then Elisha says, okay, go do this. Check, check this out. This is how prophets get down. If, so if you ever have a prophet who comes and stays with you, this is what they might say. Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. A little puzzling, I think. Um, not just a few. In other words, fill your home with all the jars that people are willing to give you. Can you imagine this encounter? You, you rock up to your neighbor's house and you say, okay, um, all the Tupperware that you have, all of the extra vases, can I have them please? And let's say you actually know who your neighbor is and so they are willing to give it to you and not say, please go away. Did you read this? No soliciting sign. No, so you go. Um, the text doesn't say this, but you have to imagine that they would then say, well, what do you want them for? So what do you say? Uh, the, the prophet of Yahweh was telling me that I need to go and collect all these vessels. So do you have, can I have the Tupperware, please? And as the story goes, she, her neighbors do provide. And she has all of these jars and they fill the house and she starts pouring from what seems like a limited amount and abundance flows. And you might say, well, that sounds ridiculous. There's only a limited amount of volume available in that vessel. And when it ex is expires, it expires. There's nothing else. And yet, as the story goes, abundance, as many vessels as were gathered into that space were filled. See, but this story would have never taken place if the widow had scoffed at Elisha. If, if she had chosen her own way. But we often like to scoff. I think we, we carry this spirit of scoffing in us, and maybe not externally, but internally our hearts say, I am I'm never going to the people in my community group. I'm never going to the people sitting next to me. God forbid I go to my neighbor. Like certainly I wouldn't go there to ask for Tupperware. I would, I would rather be not be perceived as one in need than go and make my need known. And so, and so we simply remain in that place of need. So again, what wells up in you when, when a gift is on offer? Is it that cocktail of dread, a scoff? Is it that, or is it that unreserved expectation? And so as we close, just consider this final story from Mary. Uh, it's likely you've heard this story around uh, the Christmas time. And as the story goes, the angel Gabriel comes to a teenage girl named Mary and announces that despite her having never slept with the man, that God wants to birth something new in her, and it will be the Savior of the people of Israel, the Messiah Jesus. And upon hearing that nothing is impossible for the God of Israel, Mary responds saying this. By the way, this is a teenage girl, so if you're saying, I, 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 need a little, I came here today to have my faith encouraged, my trust encouraged in Jesus, so take heart, Mary's got your back. So this is what she says in Luke 1, 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me fulfilled. See, what welled up in Mary when a gift was on offer was not a passive position or fearful obedience. No, God did not visit her with the rod, but a gift. And later in that same gospel, that biography of Jesus' life and ministry, she responds with this song. This is this magnificent song. So if you've not really listened to much, just let this, like, I don't know, build you up. This is Mary responding in worship, responding to the gift on offer. 
my soul, my, my inner being, that my inner woman glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. That's just a way of saying that God is all. He has displayed His power. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the song that wells up in Mary. If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, to my mind, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that Jesus wants to birth something new in this community, in you and in me. And he's not looking for the impressive or the mighty. He's not looking for the powerful or the strong, but he's looking for the humble, those who are willing to receive his service and turn to their neighbor in kind. Those who, in some sense, are, are looking for where Jesus is on the move. Earlier in our teaching text, he says that the way that we move toward this is by asking, seeking, and knocking, that unreserved expectation. He, he's looking for, for us to, in some sense, recall the unreserved expectation of our youth, that like gleeful squeal that would so easily ring out when we were young that has been dampened and tamped down by the weight and anxiety and fear and responsibility that we carry. God wants to release this joy. He's looking for his children to recall who they are. And then he wants us to gather up all these vessels to fill the house with places that can be filled with the abundance of his love. With his presence. With his very personal presence. So in some sense, the, the call here, what does it look like to expand our expectations for what God has on offer in Christ? Like, we need to make room for him. If you feel like your hands are clinging tightly to your merit or you're saying at some juncture, let's just, let's just concede that maybe there is a divine he, she, whatever it may be, that at some juncture, I look at the, I look at the contents of my life. That ought to be good. And in some sense, there is goodness there. And Jesus is saying, I don't need that. Can I, can I serve you? Will you, will you open that yourself up to that? Will you make room? Because Jesus wants to birth something new in you and in me. So you just ask this question of how? Unless I wash your feet, unless you become like little children and open up to me. So what, what wells up in you? Like what do you experience welling up in you now as this gift is on offer? This might feel like the most redundant and like rudimentary. Like I, I learned this in Sunday school back in the day. Open up to Jesus. But unless you let me wash your feet, you can have no part in me. What if all of our religiosity and our spiritual disciplines and our performance and our church attendance 
means little to forming us into the type of people who give our love away for the good of our neighbor? And what if the difficulty in moving into the rhythms of Jesus is so difficult because opening up to the love of Jesus is a place that we've closed off long ago? The hardest work in this season for me is actually opening myself up to receive a gift. I didn't realize how much of my life I had closed off a fear of like what, what, what somebody carried with that like compliment or then that I would like fish for a compliment and then when that came I would like reject it because I was afraid of what to do with it. I'll say a couple things in closing. Like you are actually worthy of care. You, you are seen by the living God who wants to not just see you and comment on the stuff that needs to be corrected in your life, but wants to go into the place of hurt, to go to the grossest place in your life, to reside there with you and invite you into healing. And I think that the call on this church, and again, I could be wrong about this, is to open ourselves up to receive. That the season is itself a place of receiving what God might have on offer in Christ. To remember, to recall what it was like to encounter Jesus. The freedom, the lightness, the goodness that's on offer there. The gleeful squeal. Mm-hmm.